0: Amen. Nothing much better than that, is there? See a young man share his faith and make that public profession of who he serves and who he will serve for the rest of his life. And, um, it's one of the things that never gets old. Um, so, my name is Brandon, if you don't know me, the um, uh, senior pastor here at the church. We're in a series right now called The Appearing, and we're going to keep. Looking at this today and in John chapter 2 is where we're going to be John chapter 2 verse 13 and as we're looking at this it's um, really looking at the appearing of Christ so for 400 years or so up to the coming of Jesus into the world uh, there was an anticipation but there was also a silence that it existed there were no prophets during that time who had come and uh, spoken the word of God and so there was just a lot of silence. But people were really anticipating the Lord's appearing. Um, And so there was anticipation. What we're looking at in the first three chapters of John in this series is that appearing of the Savior, of the Lord, of the Anointed One, the Messiah, as he is called. And and so that's what we've been looking at through the first um, chapter and a half of John. Today we're going to pick up um, in John 2.13, as I said, and really look at Uh, When Jesus comes into the temple and he cleanses the temple, if you've been around church much and you probably remember talking about how Jesus comes in and turns over the tables and he begins to cleanse the temple of those who were buying and selling and those who were exchanging the money, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And he does this at a festival called Passover. And Passover was a time where the Jewish people celebrated their deliverance coming out of Egypt. Uh, It goes back to them in Egypt sacrificing a lamb, putting the blood over the door of their home. And when the angel of death would come through, he would pass over their home. And the firstborn of their home was not killed, but those in Egypt were. And this was what finally moved Pharaoh's heart to let the Jews go. And so they're coming together to celebrate this deliverance of, of the Jews of them, their heritage of their ancestors from bondage. And so let's read John chapter 2, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 25, and then we'll get into the message. It says this, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables, their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you give to show us to prove or to show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we have heard your word read. God, I believe that it is the truth, the greatest truth, the ultimate truth in our lives. And Lord, you tell us that your Holy Spirit, that he comes to indwell us, and that through him, Jesus, you are with us and that your spirit would lead us into all truth. So, Lord, I pray for that today. But your word tells us that the Holy Spirit, that He is our helper. God, I pray right now for His help, His help to understand Your truth, to have our eyes open, to have our hearts stirred, to have our faith increased, to take those steps of faith that You're calling us to take. So Lord, right now we cast ourselves upon You, on Your mercy and Your grace we yield ourselves to you. Would you have your way in our hearts right now? And Lord, we know that the things you do there will be for your glory and for our good. So we commit ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So something I've realized about my life, and this may be true of you too, but it's really easy for my life to become habitual. Like where you just kind of go through the day. You kind of just go through the same things. Um, how many of you find that about your life? Especially as you start getting busy, you can kind of just become habitual in the things you do. So for example, most of you, if not all of you, can get up and go through your entire morning routine without thinking about it, Right? It's just what you do. You get out of bed, you go through your entire morning routine, whatever that is, uh, brushing your teeth, taking a shower, whatever. In fact, many of you, if you stop and think about it, and if you, don't think, if you can't remember now, you're going to notice it in the morning because I'm saying this. But many of you could tell me which body part you wash first when you get in the shower, right? It's the same thing every day. We just kind of get in this habit. For me, it's like left arm, left shoulder, cleanest part of my body right here. And it's just what we do. We just kind of get in a habit. It becomes habitual. It almost becomes like a ritual that we go through. And when you think about a ritual, it's, it's this prescribed order of performing something. It's a way of doing something regularly and invariably. It's, it's a habit. And, and what we're looking at when we read this is the Jews becoming very habitual, becoming very ritualistic, they're going through the right motions, but they have the wrong motives. And so as they're walking through this, they, they, they are doing the right stuff, but their heart's in the wrong place. And the danger of ritual is that it can really be performed mindlessly. We can go through it without engaging our mind. We can go through it without engaging our heart. And for the Jews, this was the problem with their worship. It wasn't so much just the actions that were taking place in the temple. It was the heart behind it. And this was a problem for the Jews. It was an issue that the relationship that God desired for them and with them was replaced by ritual. Purity of heart toward God had been polluted with The toxins of ritual and dead religion. I remember several years ago, back when we had first started church, we may have been three or four years old. We used to go out and do baptisms in the Geechee River. And we would just plan the day we were doing them. And then we would have just a caravan of cars just driving out to the Geechee River. I mean, it was cool because you could look behind you. It's just car after car, and here we go. And we had this one spot at the river that we would go do baptisms. It was really cool. And so we go and we do several baptisms one day. The next day, I walk into my father in law's restaurant, and there's these men at this one table, and they turn around, like all their heads snap around and look at me. I'm like, whoa. And they're like, why'd you kill all the fish? I didn't kill the fish. Like, why'd you kill all the fish? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. They said, all the fish in the Geechee River have died, and it's your fault because you put all that sin in the river and it killed every one of them. (laughs) And there had been a a pollution, a a toxin that had been dumped into the river, and it caused, caused this fish kill to happen. Thankfully, we were upstream from where the toxins went in. We didn't lose anybody. It was good. So far, our record with baptism is... Uh, You know, we're 100%, hadn't lost anybody yet. And so it happened downstream from us. But it's the same kind of thing for us. When ritual and habit begin to take the place of relationship, what begins to happen is those toxins begin to creep into our spirit, and it begins to kill the life of Jesus in us. And and when this begins to happen, it, it... It can leave us disillusioned. It can leave us confused as to what our faith is really about. And when we think about this, though, a lot of times for us, this can describe church for a lot of people, maybe even for ourselves. It just becomes a performance. It becomes regular and invariable. It becomes a habit. Maybe for you, you can... Think of a time, or even maybe right now, or maybe your entire life, that your Christian life has only been a performance. It's only been a habit. It's only been a ritual. The challenge in this, too, is this, that the ritual, those outward actions, they can't glorify God. They can't fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Lord. They can't motivate us in our pursuit of Jesus. Not just going through the actions. The actions don't drive God in. God inside does the actions on the outside of us. Ritual can't bring him glory. Ritual can't give you new life. Ritual can't give you the courage To take the steps of faith you need to take. It can't give you grace when no one else will. Ritual is unforgiving. It is up to you to perform it, to get it right, to keep the habit going. Ritual can't give you perseverance and hope to keep praying for a wayward child. It can't give you the strength you need when you're at the end of your rope, just showing up today or just getting up and reading your Bible without engaging in Christ. It can't fix that. Ritual can't provide for you when you're running out of provision. It can't heal your marriage. It can't heal you from a broken marriage. It can't give you peace in the midst of a bad diagnosis. It can't replace depression with praise and anxiety with serenity. Ritual can't comfort you when you feel abandoned or console you in the midst of loss. Ritual can't silence the voice of condemnation that won't stop ringing in your head. But what ritual can't do, Jesus can. What ritual can't do, Jesus can. And we have to get to this place where we refuse fake Religion and lifeless ritual and immerse ourselves in an authentic, life-giving relationship with Jesus. See, Christianity is not something more to do. It is someone to know. And he is the life giver. He is the light of the world. And I know this because we all fall into this trap that many people in here right now, your existence, your interaction with church, with the Bible, with prayer, it's much more ritualistic than it is a relationship. But it doesn't have to be that way. There is life in Christ. He is someone we can know. And he can infuse us with his life and the power of the Holy Spirit. But how do we get there? The first thing I want to tell you about this is this. You need to let God diagnose your heart. Let God look inside and make a diagnosis of your heart. I want you to think about the the Passover and picture this. I was laying in bed last night, and before I went to sleep, I was just reading uh, through the passage again and just praying through and thinking about it again, and I I tried to put myself in the temple. See, this is the biggest festival for the Jews, the most important one. There was a buzz going around. There was excitement going around. It made me think about back in the fall when my youngest son and I, we went to a Braves game, and it was during the time when they were in the, the middle of this pennant race, and it was coming down to those last three games they played against the Met They they had a couple other games coming up, but this was the series. Like if they were going to win the pennant, it was this three-game series that was going to do it. And they remember, you remember if you think back, they swept the Mets in a three-game series, amen, right? And they swept the Mets, and they went on to win the pennant. Well, my son and I, my youngest boy and I, we got to go to that, that first game. And it was It was so exciting. You could feel the excitement. In fact, I've got a picture of us at this game. That's us sitting there. That's how early we got there. There is nobody else in that picture. That is the only selfie I've ever taken in my life as well. And so, but but, but that's us. But look at this. This is the line outside the gate before the gates opened. The gates hadn't opened yet. This was what the line looked like. This is 30, 45 minutes before the gates opened. Not before the game, before the gates opened. And there was this buzz, this excitement, this anticipation. And I want you to picture that. That may be a little easier to picture in your mind than, than really understanding what the, this would have felt like at the temple. But there was a buzz and excitement and anticipation. Anticipation. It was the biggest festival, the most important festival that the Jews went to. In fact, all Jewish men who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem were required, obligated, to go to this Passover festival every year and to celebrate Passover at the temple. It's estimated that as many as 2,250,000 people would come to Jerusalem for the festival. Can you imagine 2,250,000? And 50,000 people all of a sudden just descending on Statesboro. We know what it's like for 20,000 in August, right? When students come back. But can you imagine 2,250,000 people coming to celebrate this? Can you kind of just close your eyes a second? Don't go to sleep. This is dangerous. But kind of close your eyes for a second and, and picture yourself in this temple and, and there's the, the, the sound of the cattle and, and the dove and there's, there's the sound of the money being exchanged and there's chatter and there's conversation and people are probably catching up with folks they haven't seen for a while. And there's just all this motion and commotion and energy and, and life that seems to be taking place and they're all so excited, right? And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus walks in, and I can just, in my mind, I can see, like, this fire in his eyes, this passion in his heart. And he looks around, and he's not caught up in the buzz and the excitement. He's heartbroken. I'm not sure I understand. Well, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I know you don't understand. Because you're a robot. You don't have a soul. And 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 he's heartbroken. He's angered. Because y'all see how I just picked right back up, man. <laughs> he's heartbroken. He's angered at what he's seeing taking place, right? He's looking around and he's like, my, you know, why? How have your hearts gotten so far from what this is intended to be? And he takes some some cords and he makes a whip. And I thought about like if I could bring a whip up here, how cool would that be? But I would destroy everything up here. And so he makes this whip and he begins to drive out those who are buying and selling and and he begins to drive out these money changers who are exchanging different types of coin for the shekels that they had to pay their temple tax and he begins to drive them out and all of a sudden, think about this, all of that buzz, all of that excitement, all of that, that getting ready and anticipation, all of a sudden it is nothing. And Jesus is... There, he's had to be looking around. And here's what's crazy. Jesus goes in and does this. He he cleanses this temple. And the entire mood of the place changes. But listen, instead of the Jews asking if Jesus' actions were justified, they asked Jesus to justify himself. They said to him, What sign are you going to give us to show us that you have this authority? Instead of looking at themselves and saying, is this a righteous action? That he stepped in and done this to the temple? They began to look at him and say, you better give us a good reason for this. And don't we have the same tendency to try to justify our actions When today what I'm encouraging you with is let God diagnose your heart. Let God see inside of your heart so that he can deal with those things that maybe have become impure and are maybe toxins in our lives that need to be removed so we can enjoy the fullness of life in Christ and bring God the most glory. We've got to let God be the one who comes in. Maybe... Maybe there's some things in our hearts today that need to be driven out. Maybe there's some tables that need to be flipped. Maybe there's some toxins that need to be purified. As you think about this, I want to encourage you today to stop judging your actions and start judging your intentions. See, for so many of us, we look at our actions, and if my actions seem righteous, then I must be righteous. If my actions are even better than the other person's actions, then I must be righteous. But don't mistake this. Listen, Jesus was not judging their actions. He was judging their hearts. It wasn't just the act of buying and selling. It wasn't just the exchanging of money. Jesus was looking at their hearts, and he was seeing that it was not right. See, you can have all the right actions with the wrong heart, and you're still not right. I'd ask you this question. Do you see right standing with God based on your actions, or do you see right standing with God based on your faith in Jesus? If we're basing our righteousness more on actions than on faith in Christ, then we are more ritualistic than we are Christians. I'll tell you this, the only righteousness in this room right now, I don't care how good you think you might be, the only righteousness in this room right now is the righteousness that has been given to us by faith in Christ. You might have done some right things, but guess what? You're not righteous. The only righteousness in this room is the righteousness that has been given to us by Jesus. You're like, "Well, well look well, look at what I did. Look at this. Look at all these things." But understand this, those are good and that's great, but Isaiah 64:6 6 says that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. See, our righteous acts compared to the holiness and righteousness of Jesus, they're filthy rags. The only righteousness in this room is what's been given to us by Jesus because God doesn't look at the action. He looks at the heart and every single person in here, you still have this remnant of a sinful heart. You still have this sinful nature. I still have this sin nature. We're all still sick in a way because we can't fully master our flesh. But the more surrendered we are to Christ, the more Christ does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The righteousness in this room is due to faith in Christ. And we look around and we look at outward actions. We look at our own outward actions. But when 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel goes to anoint the next king. And he ultimately ends up anointing David as king. He's going to replace Saul. And Samuel gets there and and he's looking around and he sees one of David's brothers. His name's Eliab. And Eliab is this big guy. And God tells Samuel, he says, don't, that's not him. He says, don't look at his height. He says, I rejected him. And God says this in 16, 7, 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Eliab looked the part, but God rejected him. It makes me think about Matthew 7. Where Jesus said, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. See, we oftentimes look at the outward appearance. God is looking at the heart. Even in John chapter 2, when you get to the end of this chapter, and it says that many people saw his miraculous signs and and they believed in his name it says but jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person and so he's looking at them and he's saying you're professing my name and you're you're believing in my name you're saying these things and it looks right but he knew that it was shallow that it was spurious that it it was it was false it was fake he knew what was in the heart And God knows what's in our heart. We as Christians need to quit focusing on our outward actions and look in our heart because if we get our heart right, our actions will be right also. If God sees past our outward appearances to our heart, shouldn't we start looking there as well? So that's kind of the, Not so fun part, right? But I also want you to understand this. That the way to relationship and life has been made. Despite all our sin, despite all our failure, despite all our tendency to become habitual, ritual human beings, the way to life has been made. When you look at verses 19 through 22... They demanded a sign. What sign are you going to give us? And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. What Jesus is saying is saying that I have come to be the temple. But what in the world does that mean? He's meaning this, Jesus, not that temple of stone and mortar. Jesus, not that temple, would become the place where God and man would meet. The Jews would come and they'd worship and they'd make their sacrifices And Jesus says, listen, this will no longer be the place where people come to meet and have relationship with God. From now on, I'm going to do something. My body's going to become this temple that does something so incredible for you that through me, you will meet with God. No longer will it be a building, but it will be a personal relationship where you are meeting with God. And that place of meeting is me. When you think about John 1 through 2.12, it talks about how Jesus came and dwelt amongst us. He tabernacled amongst us. He dwelt amongst us. In other words, Jesus came and he was the embodiment of God with us. And this is huge for the Jewish people because that's really what the temple represented. It represented God, the one true God dwelling amongst his people. Jesus says, listen, I know the temple was great and it was symbolic of the fact that you are God's chosen people and the fact that the one true God lives with you and dwells with you. But guess what? God is here now. I am the embodiment of him and I have come to dwell with you and in you in a way that no one's ever experienced before. He was the embodiment of God, of God with us. And Jesus' his body, instead of the temple, would become the place of sacrifice. Not only was it the place of sacrifice, his body became the sacrifice for our sin. And Jesus, again, because of this, becomes the place where God and man meet, where you and God are able to meet because it's in his sacrifice that our enmity with God, that us being enemies of God because of our sin, our rebellion against him has been done away with so that now we have peace with God, relationship with God. And here's what's so cool. You might have to think about this a little bit because there's so much in this. Jesus didn't come to destroy the temple. He challenged them, if you destroy it, I'll raise it in three days. He didn't come to destroy the temple. He came to make it unnecessary and obsolete because what it foreshadowed had now appeared. That is incredible. No longer necessary. Obsolete. Because what it foreshadowed and what it told us to look for, the sign that it was in and of itself had now appeared. What the temple prescribed for a meeting place with God, it prescribed the sacrifice to be made. What it prescribed had now been fulfilled. There is a way to life. To relationship. There's a way for the toxins to be removed. His name's Jesus. Last thing I'm going to tell you. Is that the invitation's been offered. The invitation's been offered. When you look at verses 14 through 17, it seems kind of harsh, right? I mean, Jesus comes in. He, he seems like it's, it's this uncontrollable wrath, which it wasn't. But he comes in. He sees all this is going wrong. He takes some cords. He makes a whip. He begins to drive everybody out. And it seems like, what in the world, man? It like, just doesn't seem like Jesus. But the driving the people out is the negative side of that action. It's the negative part of clearing the temple. But think about what happened once he had driven all of that out. He gave an invitation. It was an invitation to true heart worship. It was an invitation for the temple to become what it was meant to be. A place of true worship. And for us today, the invitation is still there. Jesus still offers this opportunity to us. As flawed and impure and imperfect as we might be today, he offers this opportunity to surrender that stuff to him and let him replace that with someone who's life-giving his spirit. He's given this invitation. It was an invitation to come to the heart of worship, to come to someone that was life-giving, to refuse fake religion and lifeless ritual and to immerse yourself in authentic life-giving relationship with Jesus. When I was, I was either 16 or 17, I had a cousin who worked for a, a really nice string of hotels and he'd go all over the United States. And one time, He was actually managing one that was down in the Caribbean. And uh, it was uh, St. Thomas was the island. And he gets in touch with me and another of my cousins, who's the same age I am. And he says, hey, would you guys like to come down here and work at the hotel for the summer? We're 16, 17 years old. Most incredible summer ever, right? I mean, it was amazing. 16, 17-year-olds on a Caribbean island. We had so much fun. I mean, it was like one of the greatest learning experiences. I didn't actually go. I didn't go. I turned down the invitation as a 16, 17-year-old to spend a summer on a Caribbean island. What an idiot. I mean, it, it, it might be a good thing. I might not be here today. But what an opportunity. What an invitation. And I say that to say this, as great as that invitation is, what about the invitation that Jesus has given us? Are we going to waste that? Are we going to squander that? Because here's the thing I can tell you. Immersing yourself in Christ... Gives you life. Jesus will give you courage to take those steps of faith. Jesus will give you grace when no one else will. Jesus will give you perseverance and hope when you're struggling praying for a wayward child. He will give you strength when you're at the end of your rope. He will provide for you when you're running out of provision. He will heal your marriage. He will heal you from a broken marriage. He will give you peace in the midst of a bad diagnosis. He will replace depression with praise. He'll give you serenity for anxiety he'll comfort you when you feel abandoned he'll console you in the midst of loss he'll silence the voice of condemnation that won't stop ringing in your head because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because that condemnation judgment and wrath was put upon him so it wouldn't fall upon you but that's not found in ritual that's not found in lifeless religion it's found when we immerse ourselves Immersed, you think about being baptized. What? Are you? you are immersed. It's literally what that word means. immersed in the water. Well, guess what? It does no good to be immersed in the water if I'm not immersed in Christ. And that's the invitation, all of you given to all of him, so that you can have all of him. What an incredible invitation. And for some of you today, there is no doubt, no doubt, with this many people in this room, that for some of you today, that invitation for you begins with salvation, 100%. No doubt. And the invitation is to exchange your unrighteousness for Jesus' righteousness to surrender all of that toxin, all of that junk, all of your life to him as Lord and Savior. That's the invitation. To exchange death for life. To serve him for the rest of your life. That your life becomes an act of worship, not just a song you sing. Today, is there anybody here that you just say yes to that invitation for the first time in salvation. So, why don't you just wave at me and say, Hey, that's me. That's me. I need Jesus. I need what he offers, and I'm ready to surrender my life to him in exchange for his life and live for him. Amen. who else Can we pray with you, friend? Thank you. We just want to pray with you. Listen, here's here's the reality. The invitation's there. Look If you don't raise your hand, you walk out of here and you know, like, look, I I know that was me. I know God's calling me. That should have been me. I should have raised my hand. I should have responded. I should have said yes to the invitation. The invitation's there. When you walk out of here, you grab somebody by the sleeve and you say, that's me. That's me. For the rest of us. And for us, saying yes to the invitation, it's it's maybe surrendering your self-righteousness. It's surrendering your selfishness. It's surrendering some habit. It's surrendering something that God is calling you to, and you know this. And it's not just what you're walking away from. It's who you're walking to, pressing into your relationship with Christ. If you don't know what that looks like, go out there and talk to somebody at that next steps table so we can hook you up with some people who will help you know what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And here's the thing. Don't be overwhelmed with this. This is not something you've got to do next year. It's not something you do next month. It's not something you do next week. It's not even something you do tomorrow. It's not even something you do in the next 24 hours. The glory of this is that it is moment by moment. Unending. Unending relationship with Christ. That's the invitation. I want to pray for us. I know that there's things this week that the Lord has spoken to my heart about. Toxins in my own life. He's called me to deal with. And I just want to pray for us that we would have the courage to do that. Father, I thank you today for the invitation. That we can come to you, Lord. To know you be found in you, to be called by your name, to be called children of God. What a privilege. And I pray that we don't waste that. God, would you stir us by your great grace, by the power of your spirit, our affections, our longings, our love for you, Jesus. Would you move us closer to you? Stir our heart to draw near to you, Lord. Pray for each person here, those who have been wounded. Lord, I thank you that as they press into you, they'll be healed. Lord, that we could even confess our sins to each other. and We would be healed, mended, made whole. God, I thank you for the powerful work of your grace through Christ. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. As we leave here, I pray, I pray, Lord, that moment by moment, we would walk with you. God, help us to celebrate moment by moment the relationship we have with you. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name.